If you are turning in your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke 13, verses 10 through 21. Otherwise, that'll be on the screen for you. Luke 13, verses 10 through 21. And we read there, Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, And lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Or yeast is the idea there, a synonym for leaven. So as I said, the concepts of Sabbath and kingdom are are big for us this afternoon, so if we can remember those, and and children, if you can look out for those two words and what we say in and around that. Uh, Luke is all about the kingdom of God, and that's because Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. Um, When you go to Luke 4, you see the beginning of Jesus' ministry described there. And, and first of all, what you have there is the, the coming of the kingdom, you could say. It's the announcement of, of who Jesus is and of what he's about to do. Then you also have, along with the, the coming of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, where Jesus speaks to his first disciples and he calls them to, to be disciples. In other words, he calls them to follow him, right? They're, they're fisher men, and he says, I'll make you fishers of men, and come, follow me. So the coming of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, these are previous messages I preached in Surrey, but today what we're looking at is the nature of the kingdom. Jesus asked this question in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? That's what we're asking this afternoon. What is the kingdom of God like? What does it look like to experience the kingdom of God? And what does this have to do with this woman who was healed on the Sabbath? And then how does this connect with us? How does this apply to us today? What's God saying to you and to me? So those are a set of questions that we'll be answering within the course of the message this afternoon. As we dig into the text, we see that Jesus is in the synagogue, verse 10. And he's in the synagogue because it's the Sabbath. That's where Jesus always was on the Sabbath. And he's teaching, we're told. And he's teaching because that's what he always did when he went to the synagogue. And what does Jesus teach? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a a way to summarize Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
So here he is, and he's teaching, and there's this woman there, and she, she's bent over. You ever seen somebody who's bent over? We would maybe say they're hunchbacked. Um, there's, a, there's a medical term that we could use, a spondylitis is what it's called, and, and in this, the bone structure of a person is shifted, so rather than normal and how we are when we stand straight up, the bone structure shifts, and it's very painful for this person who's hunched over. It's, a, it's also physically um, disfiguring, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult physical condition, but it's not just physical. It's not just physical. Verse 11, and again, I encourage you to have your Bibles open there. Verse 11, we're told that this woman had a disabling spirit. And if you're wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Verse 16 makes it clearer. Jesus says she was bound by Satan. Now, we tend, especially in our kind of Western mindset, we tend to separate the physical, the medical, from the spiritual. And that's a valid distinction to make. Uh, if we were to go back to Luke 4, you would see that after Jesus is teaching, he, he does miracles, and his miracles are described as healings and exorcisms. There's a distinction being made there, physical healings and, and spiritual healings in the sense of exercising a demon from a person. And so not all diseases are due to demonic oppression. That's true, or possession. But having said that, we get that part, but but for our Western mindset, it's good for us to remember that it, these things are not as separate as we sometimes think. Some physical conditions do have a demonic origin. It's true. And this lady's an example of that. This lady is not just disabled. Yes, she has a disabling spirit, but she is oppressed. Right? She, she literally is forced to face the ground. You think of the image that she presents. It's one of oppression. And Jesus heals her. Actually, the scripture says Jesus frees her. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Good news, right? This bent lady is now, she can straighten up, she can look to the skies, and she can praise her God. Good news. Not so fast. See, there's this other character here. He's a ruler in the synagogue, and he's mad. He's, he's indignant. That's the word we're given, verse 14. He's, he's upset about what's happened, and why? Well, because Jesus broke the rules, the Sabbath rules. You can't heal on the Sabbath. And he wants everybody to know this. So he says to all the people who have gathered, you can imagine that there would be people gathering, and he says, verse 14, there are six days in which work ought to be done Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Does he have a case, this man? Well, what did we read from Exodus 35? We read that Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. And then Exodus 31, I won't read the whole passage over again, but, but Exodus 31, just a couple verses to remind you, observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. 
Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. That's intense, isn't it? That's, that's strict law. Those are strict regulations that we see for the Sabbath in the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. But what is the point of the Sabbath? Those regulations are strict, yes, but what really is the point of the Sabbath? We can boil it down to two things, two principles, rest and worship. First of all, rest. Rest, we rest because it's the pattern set for us by our Creator. Work and and rest, work and rest, that's what He did. One day in seven, work and rest. God is the, the workman showing us how to be workers and also to be those at rest. And so the Sabbath is so central to the law of Moses because it's rooted in creation. But it's also rooted in redemption, not just creation, but redemption. Because when the Israelites were in Egypt, what were they condemned to do? Endless work. Endless work. Slavery, that's what slavery is. Endless work, and that's not what God wanted for them. God wanted them to rest. He freed them so that they could rest. It was so important to him. But yet he didn't just free them so they could rest. If you remember the story, God says, let my people go, Pharaoh, so that they can worship me. See, rest and worship. Of course, God's people can always worship him, but especially on the Sabbath day, that's that day that's set aside for worship. And Exodus 31 said it's set aside for celebrating. That gives us a a, a tweak on this idea of worship, a synonym but different, to celebrate. That's what we do. Celebrate our Creator. Celebrate our Redeemer. That's what the Israelites were called to do on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath is good. It's about these two things, rest and worship. But you know, the Sabbath, as good as it was for the Israelites, it, it was always meant to point to something greater. Because Moses had all these Sabbath commands, and the people observed them, by and large, of course, there are a few exceptions. But the people are not in the promised land. They're not in the land of rest just quite yet. And then we can go to Joshua, Moses' successor, and we see that Joshua and all all the Israelites with him conquered the nations surrounding them, and they entered into the promised land, and we're even told that God gave them rest on every side, rest from all their enemies, and yet... It's not a final rest. We know the story of Israel. We know how things go sideways and they don't remain there in the promised land. And so Hebrews 4 picks up on this, that also the rest of Joshua is not the final rest. And Hebrews 4 verse 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The book of Hebrews, perhaps it was a sermon, the, the, the work of Hebrews was written to the new covenant people of God, to the church. And it's telling the church there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that rest? Well, the next verse, chapter 4, verse 10, says it's about resting from looking to our works as the pathway to freedom. It's resting from looking at our own accomplishments as the way in which to find freedom. And in contrast, Hebrews 3 had said, chapter before, it's about sharing in Christ. So we could say it this way, looking to Jesus instead. Instead of looking to ourselves, looking to Jesus who provides true rest. Jesus who provides freedom from oppression. Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. 
brothers and sisters. And so with that in mind, there couldn't be a more appropriate day for Jesus to be at his work, actually. Because there's this deep connection between Sabbath and kingdom. And you know, what was the message of the synagogue? We asked what was Jesus' message earlier. We said it was the the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the message of the synagogue was not really any different. There were lots of different passages, of course, and scriptures expounded on, but, but what it boiled down to is this, the king is coming. All of the Old Testament prophets pointed to that hope, and they were read week after week after week in synagogue. But the main thrust of it was that the King, the Messiah, is coming. And so we go to Luke 4 where Jesus begins his ministry and he reads from the prophets. He reads from Isaiah 61. Now in the context, in the, in the background of that reading is Isaiah 58, two verses from that chapter. Verse 5 and 6 of Isaiah 58, is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? So that contrast is in the background of Isaiah 61, which Jesus reads. And that contrast, which we just looked at, leads to the promise That the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, says Isaiah chapter 61, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus reads that and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, I'm the king. We're looking for the coming of the king. I'm he. I've come to free you from oppression. You see, the ruler of the synagogue failed to see this. This this connection totally went over his head. He's so focused on the laws, and not just the Moses laws, the Mosaic laws rather, but the rabbinical laws from the rabbis. He's so focused on that that he missed out on the point of Sabbath, which is rest and worship. And you see, if he had been focused on that, what would that have looked like for him? It would have looked like this. It would have looked like showing compassion to this woman who's been bent over for 18 years. This woman who has a disabling spirit. This woman who, by all accounts, has been coming to the synagogue anyways, even though it wasn't easy for her. And she's here. And yet he's not taking notice of her. And then even when she's healed... And that should be a moment of rejoicing and and celebrating. He's not even happy for her. No compassion. And Jesus says, you have compassion on your animals even, verse 15. You, You ease the restrictions of the law for their sakes. And so Jesus says, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. See, Jesus gets it. Of course he does. Jesus gets what Sabbath is all about. It's about compassion. It's about healing. It's about freedom. This is kingdom work. And so as Jesus heals on the Sabbath, the kingdom of God is advancing. Right? If we're thinking of a a battle, one side advances, the other side retreats. Well, Well, Satan's been oppressing this woman 
That's his advancement. And Jesus pushes back on that and he frees the woman. And as he frees her, then it's a manifestation of kingdom power, confirming the teaching that he was just doing moments before. So everybody sees this and they rejoice. The people are, we're told, verse 17, rejoicing. And why are they rejoicing? Well, because this is good. This is good news, and they recognize that. The law of Moses was not such good news. The law of Moses was inadequate for rest. Um, If we go to 2 Corinthians 3 in the New Testament, we find a lot of help on this. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says, The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And when it says there, the letter kills... What it's saying is the law, for our purposes what it's saying is the law seen as a set of rules to live by, the letter, cannot give rest, cannot bring rest. Because the law seen merely as a set of rules to live by says do this, you need to follow this, you need to be free of all work on the Sabbath, and that in itself is work. It's about our works. And so verse 7 following verse 6 says, the law of Moses is a ministry that brought death. And you think, well, Moses is a man of God. This is God's law. How can we say the law of Moses is a ministry that brought death? And yet that's what verse 7 says. Verse 9 goes on to say it's a ministry that brought condemnation. And verses 14 and 15 say, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, the hearts of those who hear it. It's not that the law of Moses is bad, it's good, it's it's from God. It served a purpose, but it was inadequate for true rest. It's unable to bring this woman freedom. And that's the Mosaic law, well, we could briefly say the rabbinic law is, is worse. There's no rest in the rabbinic law, all these extra regulations piled on top of the scriptures by the rabbis. And definitely in that case, it's more work and not to work to try to follow their rules. And so that offered nothing for this woman. Jesus confirms this in a different passage in Matthew 23. We read that Jesus is talking to the crowds and his disciples and he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So that's the the Pharisees, and that's their mindset. But Jesus comes along, and he teaches something new. And rather than piling burdens on people, he removes them. He fulfills the law of Moses as he does this, right? He's the one greater than Moses, and he has a greater ministry than Moses. Not a ministry of death, not a ministry of condemnation, but one of life. Recall 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. The letter kills. What did the rest say? But the Spirit gives life. And later on, verse 17 of that chapter says, Now the Lord, that is Jesus, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. And so it's good news that Jesus brings, both in his teaching and in his healing. News of freedom, of rest, and of life. This this healing that he does is is a confirmation that the kingdom of God, which everybody's been waiting for, is indeed breaking into this world. 
And he's not just straightening then bent backs. No, he's doing more than that. He's straightening those who have been bent by Satan, whose hearts have been bent. He's unbinding and releasing people who are caught up in the grips of their sin. And you know, that's what this world needs. This world that we live in is a restless world. It's an enslaved world, full of people who are enslaved to their sin, full of people who are enslaved to their fears, enslaved to death because of their sins. And they need freedom and rest and life. And then we could ask the question, well, will they get it? Will they get it? And here's where verses 18 through 21 connect even more uh, with our text, the rest of our text, the first part here. Jesus is saying in these verses, as he speaks of the kingdom of God, He's saying, my kingdom is powerful. My kingdom does indeed bring about freedom and true rest. It can do it. It starts small with a woman like this, but it's going to spread throughout the whole world, just like yeast spreads through flour, just like a a massive tree which starts out small, but it becomes this, this tree that's got all these branches, and there's room for every bird who would wish to come and, and nest in the branches, find rest in the branches. Those are the images Jesus gives us. What else could we say about that? I mean, images are one thing. What is this actually communicating to us? Well, there are three views on the power of the kingdom that people have. The first view would be a triumphalist view. Triumphalist view. Where where people say, yeah, of course God's kingdom will spread throughout the world. Christianity is going to take over all the nations going to take over governments, going to take over industry, going to take over the arts. And through political means, through all of these means, earthly means, we are going to usher in the kingdom. We're going to make it happen. Well, is that the reality? Look around, right? Not so much. And you know what? That's not what God's promised either. Well, do we go to the, the flip side of that, a more pessimistic approach that that says, no, the the kingdom's not going to spread everywhere? Well, of course we can't say that. The gospel will go out. The gospel, the word of God has power. We know this. It'll go across the world. In fact, it already has. And so, no, we have to consider this idea of seed power or yeast power. Governments, institutions, those things might not be transformed, brothers and sisters. It's true. But slowly and surely, one at a time, people are transformed. First a crippled woman, then maybe a, a beggar, maybe another ruler in the synagogue, maybe a tax collector, and eventually throughout the whole world God's kingdom spreads so that it includes people from every tribe and language and nation. How does it do that if it's not through the government and industry and the arts? How does it do that? Well, through preaching, First of all, ordinary tasks that that we look at and we say, really, preaching? But through faithful gospel ministry and through teaching, all those who are called to teach, all those believers called to teach, and then through testifying, something that all of us, regardless of who we are as believers, are called to do, to testify. And then not just words, but our lives, right? Jesus called this man a hypocrite. The kingdom of God is is spread through our words as we speak it, and the Spirit works with that, but also through our godly living. 
we may win our neighbors to Christ. By living out Sabbath principles of rest and freedom and worship, Exodus 31, it said this, verse 3, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And see that last bit there. God is the one who makes you and I holy. And he does that in Christ. And this is what the Sabbath reveals. And so Hebrews 4 says, anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. I can't make myself holy, and you can't either. Um, This ruler of the synagogue, he's standing there tall. But you know, he was crippled by the burden of his self-righteousness, much more than this woman who was bent over. It's the same for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, as we close, the, the people of this world need the power of the kingdom of God. They need it to break into their lives and to free them and to bring them true Sabbath rest. But you and I need that as well. We all need it. And currently that's an extra challenge, right, with all of these pandemic restrictions that we're facing. Because we live in the world, but, but particularly on this day, on, on the Lord's Day, we are called to come out of the world and to go into the Word as a church. It's one of the reasons why we gather, to come out of the world and into the Word. And it's harder for us to break for one day in seven when we're not gathering. That's just self-evident. But whatever the challenges or pressures you're facing, don't work seven days a week. You can't do it. You're not designed for it. It's endless work. It's slavery. Remember the Israelites in Egypt. So as we speak of the importance of a Sabbath day, a one day in seven, this is not some kind of new legalism, not a different kind of slavery, right? As those who are in Christ, Galatians 5 says this well, as those who are in Christ, we are free. We're called to freedom. But you know, as you commit to Sunday as a time of Sabbath, that's going to be of such great spiritual benefit for you. God will be pleased as you set aside that one day in seven to rest and to worship again. Those are the principles. And so we sit here and we balance these two concepts before us. On the one hand, Sunday is, as, as a favorite hymn of mine says, day of all the week, the best emblem of eternal rest. And on the other hand, the Sabbath is for all of life, not just for one day. And when we enter into the new creation kingdom, realize this, brothers and sisters, there will be no week of seven days. There will just be the eternal eighth day, the everlasting day which knows no end, a day on which we will be forever free and all we will do is rest and worship for all eternity. But don't wait to start until then. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the Lord work in you by His Spirit. And then you will experience today, already now, the eternal Sabbath rest of the kingdom of God. Amen.